everybody. Welcome to episode 81 of Waking Up to Narcissism. I am your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and host of the Virtual Couch Podcast, and I am glad to have you here. And we are going to continue to unravel the complex threads of all things emotionally immature, all the way up there to narcissistic traits and tendencies, and how these things negatively impact your relationship. And last week, we talked more about control, and I I want to just hammer uh, home as much as I can that you can have this love or control in an adult relationship, but not both. And that elicited a lot of good feedback. And there's a topic that I've wanted to to talk about almost as if I would have set last week up as a part one, this could be a part two, but it's talking about coercive control. So a different, a different way that control manifests itself in the relationship. So we're going to talk about that today. Of course, if uh, you are interested in a marriage workshop that I have, you can go find the link in the link tree, which is in the show notes, or you can go to my website, tonyoverbay.com. I would love it if you would sign up for my newsletter and you can submit any questions or comments or your own stories, your poems, everything to contact or info at tonyoverbay.com. And I would love to have that if you're interested in being in the men's or women's Facebook group. So all of that you'll find in the show notes or you can just reach out to me. So before we get to the the more serious matters that we're going to talk about today, a friend of mine submitted what he thinks will be the first in waking up to narcissism history, and that is it's all around love or control. And he sent a haiku, a riddle, a knock knock joke, and I think for the first time in waking up to narcissism history, a limerick, and all around love and control. Now I have reached back out to this individual and asked if this was done via artificial intelligence, chat GPT, and uh, they have not gotten back to me yet. So this might be my guess. Here we go. First, we'll start with the haiku. In love or control, one can thrive, the other steals, choose heart, free the soul. Next up is the riddle. What can flourish when let free, but withers when tightly gripped? In hands that hold it tightly, it's cherished. In chains, it's stripped. What am I? And so I believe that is love. So that one is actually very beautiful. I really enjoy that. And next is the knock-knock joke. Knock-knock. Who's there? Olive. Olive who? Olive freely, not under control, for that's where love truly unfolds. So olive or I'll live. And last but not least, the limerick. He said, wait, there's more. Here's a limerick. In a bond where one tightly controls, love like a bloom never fully unfolds, but when hearts are set free, they can dance, they can be in a love where true trust takes hold. Either the person, my friend, has all of a sudden become incredibly more creative, or I believe they may have plugged some things into into chat GPT. But regardless, I appreciate that because I'm bringing a little, little bit of levity there before we get to the heavier subject today. So maybe by way of a little bit of a transition, I do want to talk about some, well, I love movies. I really do. I enjoy ones that are based off of true events or based off of a true story. But we went to a movie last night, actually the new Mission Impossible movie, which was wonderful. But there were a couple of the previews that talked about upcoming movies that were based on a true story or based on real events. And it does leave me often wondering if the true part, it could be as little as, okay, they both wore, they both like to wear red shirts. So we've got that part down and now we can take creative license. So uh, I hope that that's not what a based off of a true story movie really is. But let me share a narrative with you that is this is absolutely based off of a true story. But there's more. Let me talk a little bit about technology. I've made the jokes today about artificial intelligence, which that was part of why I put those riddles and and rhymes and limericks and the haikus and jokes that I think that my friend did create through artificial intelligence. 
But if you are afraid of AI, and I am not talking about 76ers legendary point guard Allen Iverson, I'm talking about artificial intelligence, and the tool can really be used for your good. And here's an example of how. So I had three emails that were very similar. They were talking, in essence, about this coercive control, this concept that we're going to talk about today. And they were narratives where there were two of them where the man was more emotionally immature, one the woman was more emotionally immature. So what I did was I took these three similar stories, again, centered around coercive control, and I fed them into ChatGPT. And then I asked it to take the three stories, combine them into one, change the names and some of the details to provide this new narrative. And it did an amazing job, which is funny to me. I always reply back to the artificial intelligence because I hope that someday if the robots do occupy a significant place of power in society, they will at least think that guy was pretty nice. So I told ChatGPT that they did a fantastic job combining these three narratives into one and they always say thank you. And uh, that's your technology moment for the day. But here goes. I want to tell a narrative, and I think this will ease into what we're going to talk about today. So meet Jenna and Mark, a seemingly typical married couple. However, as we delve deeper into their daily lives, a more unsettling reality surfaces. Mark, charming and charismatic, he harbors a side of him that is far less appealing. He's a practitioner of this coercive control, a type of abuse that remains largely invisible to onlookers. So pattern one that we're going to talk about today, I call the stripping of autonomy. So he made sure that Jenna quit her job, claiming that he would be the sole provider, that he would be the protector. Jenna, who was initially flattered, soon realized the implications because Mark ended up dictating her daily schedule, her friendships, even her hobbies. So her autonomy began to slowly but surely evaporate. And it was like that she was a supporting character in her own life story, that her decisions slowly became not her own. Even when she tried to mention these things to Mark, she was quickly told that, well, that isn't what you really want, or just trust me, I, I, I can take care of this. And then attempts to reclaim her autonomy were met with hostility. And eventually she was dismissed as ungrateful toward Mark and for all the sacrifices that he had done to the point where she started to then have that stripping of the autonomy, where she started to feel like maybe it is her, that maybe she's not as grateful as she should be. So, which leads into pattern two, which is the manipulation of intimacy and sex. So, Mark began to slowly control their intimate life as well. His demands reached all the way into the bedroom, and they became increasingly explicit and beginning to cross boundaries that Jenna wasn't comfortable with. But every time that Jenna expressed her discomfort, she was told that she was overreacting or that she needed to loosen up, that the blame was on her and it wasn't on him. If he tried to have conversations around sex and intimacy, then he would go into more of a victim mindset and say, no, okay, it doesn't matter. I won't ever ask for anything again. Pattern three that we often see in the world of coercive control, I call the technological leash. So Mark then insisted initially on having all of Jenna's passwords for her safety, he would say, that he installed a home security system that seemed to surveil her more than it protected them. She began to feel like a prisoner in her own home, and any attempt to question his actions was met with scoffs and comments about her being paranoid. And then pattern four, the regulated health and body. So Mark began, and this was done initially by suggestion or just trying to have some conversations, but began regulating Jenna's diet and her sleep schedule. He ended up deciding what she ate and when she slept and what she wore. And if Jenna defied his recommendations, I use that in air quotes, Mark accused her of not caring about her health or her appearance or him. So despite Jenna's pleas that she didn't feel comfortable with this level of the control, Mark brushed her off because he was asserting that he did know what was best for her. And isn't that what she wanted was to eat healthier and to be able to look better. But again, those were determined by Mark. Pattern five, we have this shifting of financial power as well. Mark slowly took control of all the finances, claiming that he was better at managing the money. 
and Jenna found herself needing to ask for money even for basic necessities. So when she suggested getting a job to regain some financial independence, Mark rebuffed her. He said that her role was to care for the home, not to worry about money, that that was his job, and that if she just needed more, she just needed to ask him, even though she felt like if she even hesitated or brought things up, then she would get grilled and told that, well, that sounded like she wasn't being appreciative or that she was being selfish. And then that sixth pattern of course of control would be the emotional roulette. So Mark's mood dictated the atmosphere at home. And Jenna had to tiptoe around him, always weary of triggering a negative reaction. On good days, Mark was the caring husband. But on bad days, Jenna found herself the target of his frustrations. And she felt like she was walking on eggshells with her peace of mind just basically hinging on his ever fluctuating moods. And what can be incredibly difficult about that is that when he would get really angry and frustrated, then he would at times apologize and say, I won't ever do it again. And this is where I like to say that I, I do believe in those moments. A lot of times the emotionally more emotionally mature person absolutely means it. They do not like the way that that feels either. So to get rid of that discomfort, they apologize and they will never do it again until they do it again. Instead of apologizing, getting out of that discomfort and then working on themselves, whether it's the two of them going to couples counseling or are in the scenario Mark going to individual counseling would probably even be better at that point, as long as he's willing to take criticism or feedback or he's willing to self-confront. And is he starting a meditation practice or is he starting to really try to look at his wife with curiosity and not just saying, but I know, but I know better and she's not even being honest with herself. So throughout this process, Jenna tried to voice her concerns. She tried to start conversations about the subtle manipulation or the loss of control. But every time she was gaslit, she was made to believe that she was imagining things or that she was ungrateful. And as time passed, Jenna found herself tolerating his behavior, but unfortunately doing what so many people do, just hoping things would eventually improve. But hope started to fade as she continued to feel unheard, unseen, and then just crushed under the weight of his coercive control. And that is, thank you, ChatGPT, the unspoken reality of so many of the victims of coercive control, because it's not about physical violence or even overt, blatant abuse. It's about this gradual, just relentless erosion of self-worth, of autonomy, of identity. So today I want to talk more about those patterns that I mentioned, but just in general, when you think about now you can see that this topic of course of control is so important to discuss because when you think about abuse in a relationship, or even when you think about what can make somebody leave a relationship, it can be pretty easy to spot when it is the physical abuse. And then if somebody leaves because, I mean, at some point they literally have a black eye or bruises or a broken arm or, and they finally just say, man, it's about time you got out. So what we don't often think about. So again, it's easy to think about when you see or hear about these explosive arguments or heated disagreements that are turned physical, or you may overhear just this constant barrage of demeaning words. I've had people at times where they will talk about going on vacation with a couple and then thinking that they had thought this couple was just had everything figured out and then they get out there and, and they're with them for an extended period of time. And then they start to hear things like a physical, just a physical barrage, whether it's from the husband or the wife or both. I just had somebody, some, another person very close to me talk about taking on a new job where they were in the presence of a couple that when this person was talking one-on-one -on -one with each person in the relationship, they were so nice. But when you got the two of them together, they just bickered. And it was almost as if that was the air they breathed in the relationship together. So that can be just so difficult to be in a relationship like that because people don't necessarily see it from the outside. And even when they start to have time and they do start to interact with people more and they do see those signs of this coercive control or this emotional abuse, 
then it's really difficult to try to do something about it because you start to feel crazy yourself because you start to think, well, maybe it isn't as bad or maybe I'm only seeing one side of things and I'm not seeing it the right way. It's overlooked. It's hidden in the shadows of the day-to-day lives in this form of abuse because it doesn't leave the visible scars. I think it can actually be more destructive because it can happen over longer periods of time. Imagine living in a house that is, is starting to sink into the ground but it's not sinking all at once. It's a slow, steady sinking. It's so gradual that you barely notice it at all. You wake up in the morning and you, you start to grab a bowl of cereal and it just it tilts a little bit. You see the milk swishing just a little bit. Or your favorite family picture, it just hangs at a slight angle. Oh, uh, and the kitchen table starts to wobble just a little bit. And it's disconcerting, but you make little adjustments. You you keep up a brave face as, and life goes on. You put a little piece of cardboard under the table and you think that, well, now it isn't so bad until then maybe it starts to get a little bit worse after a, a long period of time. But after all, the walls are still standing or you can still you can still get the, the bowl out and have breakfast. It just it just starts to seem a little off. But then one day you finally find that you're basically walking uphill to get from the living room to the bedroom. And you can't open the front door without a forceful shove and your cherished uh, cereal bowl keeps sliding off the kitchen table. And the odd thing is that to the outside world, your house still looks perfectly fine. But inside, everything is off balance because you're off balance and the ground beneath your feet starts to shift and you start to just leave interactions just feeling uncertain and disoriented, which is a phrase that I've heard often. And it can make you start to feel alone even within your relationship. So this is the reality for victims of coercive control because it's this slow erosion of autonomy, of of self-esteem and of personal space that then leaves the victims on shaky ground, not quite sure what's even happened, but especially unsure of how to fix it. So we're going to dig a little bit deeper into these six types of coercive control. We're going to expose them for hopefully what they truly are as forms of control and manipulation and hopefully equip you with the tools to recognize and then address it. And, and I want to just bring great awareness to the whole reason that uh, this podcast exists is not trying to blame others. Because when I go with my pillar one of uh, my four pillars of a connected conversation, that there is this assumption of good intentions in someone's behavior or, and this is, we'll call it one B, or there is a reason why that person is showing up the way they are. There's a reason why that person behaves the way they do. There's a reason why that person attempts to love the way that they do. And there's a reason why that person controls the way that they do. And so often, most, most often it is because that's how they saw relationships modeled. That this emotional immature reaction of a partner is at its core, a deep, deep insecurity that this person does not know how to sit with that discomfort at all. So in order to make sure that they can keep someone in their lives, they need to control them and control them in a way that will, again, zap the autonomy out of their partner. But to them, that's why when they see that their partner may be really hurting, they they can back off. I won't do it again because now I may lose them because they're angry. So then I let go of the reins. But then as the day goes on and time goes on and we go back to our normal, you know, regularly scheduled programming, then here comes that control back in there because that person isn't there doing their own work. They're not trying to self-confront. And even when they do, and this is from my seat as a marriage therapist, when I'm talking about trying to help a couple become two interdependent, differentiated people, meaning where one person ends and the other begins, not codependent, not enmeshed, not uh, two halves make a whole. As wonderful as that sounds, 
we need two holes coming together to then make a third, a third entity of two people with this amazing shared experience is bringing all of our life experience into the situation. So now we are just, I can't wait to hear what my, my spouse's experience of life is and then to share mine. But neither of us are trying to control the other person, put the other person down or change that other person's narrative. And I really believe that this is not something that people just have in their factory default settings because we didn't see that in our childhood. We didn't see our parents modeling that type of behavior. So it feels like the very thing that sounds so counterintuitive that it's the cliche that, you know, to love someone, you must let them go. But it really is to love someone you need to let them let them be and let them become. And you need to actually encourage that and you need to be excited about that. Because as that happens and you start to realize that also allows me the autonomy to be and think and feel the way that I can. And then that person may still be there right beside you. And now we can have uh, more real, vulnerable conversations. You can open up more. And, and it isn't about control that you start to recognize what love truly can be and what it is. And it, uh, and it can just be mind-blowing. Anyway, I could talk about this ad nauseum just over and over again. But let's, uh, let's get to these things that I mentioned in that narrative, the narrative of Mark and Jenna. I talked about stripping of autonomy. I talked about the manipulation of, of intimacy and sex, the, the technological leash, regulated health and body, the shifting of financial power, and then this emotional roulette. So let me dig into those a little bit deeper. First up is that stripping of autonomy. So this is, this is often disguised as romantic involvement or concern. This can be part of that, the love bombing phase that this pattern can, it includes just what can seem like just benign behavior, but they start to slowly chip away at the victim's autonomy. So the, the perpetrator might discourage the victim from working or pursuing their interests, restrict their, their movement, exert control over mundane life choices like their diet or their daily schedule. That that person, the person that is exerting the control may have just an opinion. It might be just a low key opinion, as the kids say, about everything that they're doing. Because the intent behind this pattern of coercive control is it's multifaceted. Because in its simplest form, the individual seeking control is attempting to create a reality where the victim is entirely dependent on them. That dependence can be financial, it can be emotional, it can be even social, but the end goal is always the same, to create a dynamic where the victim feels they cannot function independently and they must rely on the perpetrator. So by discouraging the victim from working, the abuser seeks to create financial dependence. If the victim is able to not earn their own income, then they're less likely to leave having fewer resources to support themselves independently. So when the victim's interests and hobbies are belittled and undermined, it isolates them, often severing their connections with friends or social groups. And that isolation then further strengthens the abuser's control because now the victim's support system is progressively eroded. And so when you start uh, controlling the victim's movement and daily schedule, then that can even be more oppressive because when you're dictating when they can go out, who they see, when they eat, when they can sleep, then the abuser reduces the victim's life to a pretty narrow, tightly controlled existence. And this is one of those things or situations where I think the people that are listening to Waking Up to Narcissism can maybe understand or have seen or are in these types of relationships. And because I think this is one where if you're hearing this and you have not been in this type of a relationship or you're not familiar with it, then it's so easy to say, well, the person just needs to do something different. They just need to express themselves. But then to the population that are listening to this podcast, it's not that easy, unfortunately. So this level of control over time just leads to a sense of learned helplessness in the victim. And so they start to feel like they're almost incapable of making even the most basic decisions without their abuser's input or approval. 
And then additionally, the abuser might maintain a facade of care and concern while enforcing these restrictions. And that makes the victim question whether they really are, am I being abused or is, is my partner, maybe, maybe they're being a little overprotective or maybe they just care a lot. And this ambiguity can make it even harder for the victim to recognize the control for what it is, a manipulative tactic to diminish their independence and their autonomy. So steadily, by eroding the victim's autonomy in these ways, the abuser ensures that the victim feels trapped and relying upon them and often too intimidated or unsure to seek help. So the result is this powerful form of control that then keeps the victim tethered to the abuser and then the abuser in this position of power, which then only just strengthens over time. So next up, we have uh, pattern two, which is the it's the manipulation of intimacy and sex, which can be a difficult thing to talk about, but it is a very common form of coercive control. So in this form, the perpetrator then manipulates the intimate aspects of the relationship. And, and this is done by a lot of crossing of personal boundaries and turning sexual interactions into means of exercising this power or control. And underlying this form of control is, again, it's this need of dominance or a sense of entitlement to, in this case, the victim's body. So by dictating the terms of their intimate life, then the abuser reinforces their power and control in the relationship. So this could manifest in a lot of different ways, making demands or suggestions regarding the victim's appearance or insisting on certain sexual acts that the uh, the victim isn't comfortable with or using compliments and praise as a tool to manipulate the person into compliance. And you can see where there can start to be such a gray area here because people like to be complimented. They like to hear nice things. But if this is a conversation or a, a situation where somebody compliments so that then they can get something from that. So if they say, man, you look amazing. And did I tell you you look amazing? And I can't believe that you didn't acknowledge the fact that I've been pointing out how much I think that you look great. And as if there was this, there's a cost to that, or there's a, there's something that needs to be exchanged, or there's a reciprocal nature of if I compliment you, then now you obviously owe me something. So the, but you see it a lot though, just as an example where the, the abuser might insist on certain types of clothing or make critical remarks about the, the victim's body, which can then lower their self-esteem and make them more susceptible to control. And so when it comes to this realm of sexual intimacy, that can be such a important and private part of a relationship, the abuser might insist on practices that then the victim finds uncomfortable or degrading. So they might use guilt and blame or shame to coerce the victim into giving in or acquiescing to their demands and, and insisting that their requests are normal or that the, the victim is being prudish or overreacting or too sensitive. Because the ultimate goal of this pattern of course of control is to assert some sort of dominance in, in the most personal and intimate aspects of the victim's life. And then again, if we're talking about isolation and secrecy and privacy, this is an area where a lot of people, if we're going with the woman is the, the victim in the scenario that she doesn't have maybe a lot of people that she talks about these things because they are part of her intimate or private life. And then it, it seeks to turn sexuality, which is a domain that is built off of respect, consent, enjoyment into another avenue of control. And then by making the victim feel that their boundaries and, and comfort are insignificant or wrong more, more often than not, then the abuser just slowly but surely chips away at their confidence and their autonomy. And it leaves them feeling more vulnerable to further and further manipulation. So the abuser in this scenario also might disguise their actions as things like spicing up the relationship or no, I just care about your appearance. I want you to look good for yourself. But then that kind of muddies the waters though and, and makes it more difficult for the victim to identify the abuse. 
So the victim might then start to feel ashamed and guilty and confused and, and, you know, doubting their own feelings and perceptions about what they want, what they want to look like, how they want to dress, how they want to do their hair, what they, what they just like to wear, uh, and who they like to be. So this form of gaslighting, then it starts to amplify the control, making again, the victim second guess their instincts. And we want you to trust your gut. And again, both sides of the coin, this can happen with the female or the male being the abuser in this scenario. And so, but trusting your gut and because it's okay to have boundaries in your intimate life as well, because in this manner, the abuser uses intimacy and sex as a tool to, to again, degrade or dominate or control the victim, adding another layer to that web of coercive control. So let's move on to pattern three. This one's really fascinating. Uh, I spent the my first decade before becoming a therapist in the computer industry, which I recognize now is so long ago that when I like to think that I know things technological, the, the technology industry just changes at such a rapid rate that I know that this is another, again, another area that I know that I don't know what I don't know. But uh, pattern three, of course, of control, as I like to call it, the technological leash. When I was trying to come up with some other names that I had the digital dictator down at this point as well. But in this form of control, the perpetrator uses technology as a tool to monitor, surveil, control the victim. So the underlying motive here is to exert control and maintain dominance by invading the victim's privacy and limiting their freedom, quite frankly. And and if you can start to see this pattern that we're going to see continually over and over in coercive control is there can be this real subtle hint of, but it. There's some good in here too, because if you are on this, if somebody knows more about technology and they just don't know, I have cameras all around the house because I want to keep us safe. But then if they are saying, Hey, I noticed you left at four o'clock, where were you going? Or you, you didn't stop by for a little while until it was too late. Or I noticed that so-and-so was at the house today. What were they asking for? I've had so many examples of these. One recently of somebody that was just doing the door-to-door sales, knocking for, I don't know, pest control or what's that, solar or whatever it looks like. And then the husband in the scenario just gave the wife the third degree of saying, well, you talked to him for quite a while and I couldn't really hear well on the ring cam. And, and so I'm curious why, what were you, did you cover up the the speaker on the ring cam? Because were you trying to hide something? And she was just answering the door and there was nothing nefarious about her talking to the person that rang the doorbell. So the digital dictator or this the, the technology leash person, they start often very subtly. They might insist on having access to the victim's passwords and emails and social media accounts under the, the pretense of safety or trust. And let me just say, too, I as I say, the victim and the abuser, it's starting to just uh, sound very heavy. But I don't want to just simply replace it with Ken and Barbie or person A and person B. So I just want to acknowledge the fact that if that starts to sound heavy, that uh, that's just for the context that we can say, again, the victim can be the male or the female, the abuser, the male or the female. So I'm going to continue with those terms just to, to make sure that we're staying in the it's clear of the who I'm talking about when I'm talking about the coercive control. We go back to this this person having the victim's emails and social uh, accounts under this pretense of safety, digital safety even. And then gradually the demands might escalate into installing surveillance systems and shared spaces or tracking devices on the victim's personal devices. The digital dictator may also then use technology to isolate the victim, such as controlling their access to the internet or their use of digital devices, all in the name of good. Maybe they might say things like, well, and I can actually pull from real examples of, well, we should shut down the internet for the kids sake at uh, nine o'clock at night. And so then that, that includes us too, says the, in this scenario, it was the husband 
who then the wife couldn't uh, get on social media because then that was blocked at the router level, except for then he was able to get around it by he knew the master password. But the another example might be, and these are all based on a true story, but the abuser may install surveillance cameras in the home ostensibly uh, for security, but then again, in reality, to monitor the victim's movements or control their activities. And they might insist on having access to the victim's personal accounts or devices, justifying this, in essence, this invasion of privacy with excuses such as concern for their safety or a need for transparency or desire to protect the victim from supposed online threats. Now, I will say in a healthy relationship, I am a huge fan of people knowing everybody's passwords. You can get into their email accounts and, and that sort of thing. It even sounds funny to say get into because I know that in my own personal relationships, there, if there isn't anything to, to hide, then why would anyone worry about someone having access to accounts? But it goes both ways. It's reciprocal. And so if, if, the agreement is that both of you will have access to all of your passwords and accounts because there is some safety in there. Heaven forbid if somebody pass away and you don't have access to bank accounts or, or sensitive information that is needed, then that would be something that would be necessary. The difficulty in all things emotionally immature is that it just takes on this slightly different uh, meaning or this slightly different way that it is done. Again, this is why the coercive control is such an important concept because, because it's done as a way to, to control the other person. That it isn't just this, hey, we have this mutually reciprocal open conversations around everything digital. It's, hey, I, I haven't given you my passwords, but I need your passwords. And then I'll get you your passwords later. Or I'll give you that access or the information that you need later, but I need yours right now, but because of some special situation or circumstance. But then by tracking the victim's movements, communications, online activity, then the abuser does over time create this environment of just constant surveillance where the victim's actions are monitored and controlled. And then the abuser can then use this information to continue to control, criticize. That's a huge part of this and manipulate the victim, amplifying their feelings of fear and entrapment. And, and we've got three more of these course of control patterns to go. So you can start to see how this can just feel heavy as there are these uh, control measures on a lot of different sides or a lot of different areas of the relationship. And then any attempt by the victim to reclaim their privacy or question the abuser's actions are typically dismissed. Often, this is where the person just does not answer. And if you are the pathologically kind person, then often it's difficult enough for you to bring up your questions or concerns around your digital privacy being invaded. And then if you are expressing that, then you may be told immediately, well, why? What do you have to hide? And if you say things to the effect of, well, I don't feel like I have access to your accounts. Well, are you saying that you think that I'm doing something wrong? So you can see where people just start to get in this pattern of just feeling like they're going crazy or gaslit. So at this point, then let's say that the uh, the pathologically kind or victim in this scenario is is saying, well, I would like access to your accounts. Now, the abuser might accuse the victim of being paranoid or overreacting, or maybe it's because you're hiding something. So they're, they're gaslighting the victim into doubting their own perceptions, and then that further strengthens the abuser's control. So in, in this way, the, the digital dictator, so to speak, transforms technology from a tool of convenience into this instrument of, I don't know, control and oppression. So then the victim is stripped of their privacy, their autonomy is undermined, and then they are made to feel as though they are under constant watch which further reinforces this power imbalance in the abusive relationship. Let's do three more. We'll try to get through these quickly. The next one is the the pattern four is it's the regulating the person regulates the, the victim's health and body. And in this scenario, when I was talking about the Mark and Jenna, Mark began regulating Jenna's diet and her sleep schedule. And he decided what she ate, when she slept, what she wore, 
If Jen had defied his recommendations, Mark then said, you don't care about your health or your appearance. I guess I care about you more than you do. So this regulated health and body pattern. So in this form of coercive control, the abuser then seeks to exert control over the victim's physical, in essence, all things physical. The perpetrator may control the victim's diet or sleep schedule, physical activities. Again, we mentioned earlier their appearance under the pretext or the concern that I just care about you. I care about your health and I care about your attractiveness because I want you to look good. The, the body, the, I, call this, I was starting to refer to this as the body overseer in my notes. The body overseer then typically begins by suggesting alterations to their lifestyle, their appearance. Again, under the guise of this is for the, the victim's own good. They might present these suggestions as just advice, subtle advice, little recommendations, given the illusion that the victim has the choice. And here's the big thing about coercive control, that they have a choice to accept or reject these changes. But these suggestions are so often they're accompanied by subtle manipulations or guilt trips that are designed to pressure the victim into compliance. So that feeling that you do have a choice is a huge piece of the coercive control component altogether. And then as time passes, these suggestions evolve into directives or demands, and the abuser might dictate what the victim can and cannot eat. Set, they set strict sleeping schedules. They impose stringent exercise routines. Hey, did you get to the gym today? They may also control the victim's wardrobe, criticizing their clothing choices or insisting that they dress a certain way to truthfully please the abuser, but then that again is made into a situation that appears like the abuser just wants what's best for the victim. But there's no curiosity there, no questions about, well, what do you want? Because that underlying goal of this body overseer is to control the victim's physical autonomy. And in doing so, here we are back to control, controlling their sense of self-worth, their self-perception. And then by regulating the the victim's body and appearance, then the abuser seeks to diminish the victim's self-esteem and it makes them more vulnerable to manipulation and control. And all of these things just feed each other and just slowly wear down that to the victim's just sense of self. So then they're made to feel as though they are not capable of making decisions about their own body or well-being. And now they need that relier. They, they rely on that abuser for these decisions. And then any attempt at the, the victim to reclaim control over their body or their health, again, are met with our, our old friends, ridicule, criticism, emotional manipulation. Because there the abuser might accuse the victim of not caring. You, just, you might not care. You must not care about your health, your appearance, and you must not appreciate my care and my concern for you. So then these accusations serve to gaslight the victim into doubting their own judgment, guilt them into surrendering their control to the abuser. So ultimately, this body overseer manipulates the victim's desire for health and self-care, and then they transform it into another method of control and domination. And that leaves that victim feeling um, insecure, dependent, unable to assert their autonomy over even their very own body. We have two more. One is um, financial. I'll try to, to go through this one quickly. So it's this shifting of financial power. I'll just, for the sake of having some of the, the titles here, the money master. And this manifestation, the, of course, of control, the abuser seeks to dominate the financial dynamics of the relationship. Man, this one can be just such a an incredible form of control. Because if the person in this scenario, let's say the, the wife is has been a stay-at-home mom, which is an amazing thing, then she may be left in a position where she lacks the financial acumen lacks the financial access to to even be able to set boundaries or stand up for herself if she is starting to wake up to the emotional immaturity in a relationship. And it can be vice versa on the other side again as well. But this is often framed as the abuser being, we could air quote, better with money or just trying to help. And this pattern involves the abuser taking over the, the victim's finances, limiting their access to funds or controlling their ability to work or earn income. 
So then this, this money master might start with what would seem like harmless actions, like offering to handle all the bills or manage the joint finances. And as time goes on, the abuser gradually consolidates control over all things financial, making the victim increasingly reliant, reliant on them for money. And the abuser might control the victim's access to joint bank accounts, limit their spending, or impose strict budgets that leave the victim without any discretionary funds, or what I like to call wham, a little walking around money. And in more extreme cases, the money master might prevent the victim from working or earning their own income, and they might criticize the victim's job or career choice, or pressure them into quitting, or create circumstances that make it really difficult for the victim to maintain employment at all. So then they might also discourage the victim from pursuing further education or skill development, and that will limit these opportunities for financial independence. And a lot of times, whether it's the male or the female, if I find them working with somebody that is in a position where they are starting to look at leaving the relationship, they may try to get uh, a job or change careers or go back to school. And that's where you can see at, you can see the motives behind maybe the person that is being more manipulative or controlling where they may not want that of their partner. So then this primary objective of the money master is to create financial dependence. We're starting to see a lot of just creating this emotional or, or financial dependence on people. And then that traps that victim into the relationship through this economic control. And then the victim is made to feel incapable of managing their own finances and dependent on the abuser for their financial survivor. We keep going back to that intermittent reinforcement. So the way that that would look in the financial world is that the person controlling the purse string, so to speak, is happy to offer it and then provide the, the oh my gosh, this person's amazing. Here's this money so we can go do these fun things. And then the next breath, then withhold finances or criticize financial choices. So the same person that is the person that hands out the reward is also the person that is the punisher, which creates this that in that intermittent um, reinforcement, this this trauma bond of sorts around finances. So then, any attempt by the victim to um, regain this financial autonomy are then met with resistance or manipulation, and the abuser then starts to belittle the victim's financial skills. Oh, you don't really even know what you're talking about, or do you even know how much money we make, or do you know how much money is being spent? And they insist that if it's what they're doing, the, is it's for the best. Or they use emotional manipulation to then continue to, do, I don't know, deter the victim from seeking this financial independence or having a say in the finances. So in essence, this money master leverages financial control to limit the victim's options and freedom. And it makes it incredibly difficult for them to leave the relationship or resist the abuser's control because of that financial piece. So then the victim's left feeling financial insecure and powerless. And that reinforces more and more the abuser's control over them. Finally, this what I call the social uh, the social puppeteer. So in this pattern of course of control, this is characterized by the abuser manipulating social scenarios. Some call it in the world of emotional maturity, sequestering or isolating the victim. So they start to try to manipulate or control these social scenarios and relationships to isolate the victim. And they will effectively cut them off from their support circles. And, and typically this, they masquerade as uh, jealousy, protectiveness, or even affection. And this tactic is often deployed with the intent to create an environment where the abuser can have maximum control by just controlling the, the people that they talk to. So they can slowly but surely start to keep the person away from, keep the victim away from people that may, may help the, the victim see that they are not in a healthy relationship. So the, the manipulator, they may start by voicing concerns about certain friends or family members. And they subtly just start to suggest that they don't think that person is being a very good influence. You know, they're definitely a negative influence or they don't have good intentions. And over time, 
the criticisms might start to escalate into full-on opposition to the victim's social interactions. And then the abuser might use various strategies like guilt-tripping or anger-sulking, outright demands, and they start to pressure the victim into reducing or cutting off contact with their social circle. And they can do that, too, by even just creating drama or creating things that will pop up right before the the victim is going to start to go hang out with friends or people that the the manipulator or the abuser thinks is not 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 good for them to hang out with now in in real extreme cases then the abuser may resort to spreading rumors or false narratives about the victim to their friends and family and they do this to try to create rifts and even cause conflicts and they might portray themselves as this misunderstood or they're the wronged party or these uh, all these things just to isolate the victim further. And you see this even within the family dynamic. I can't tell you how many times I hear stories about the, okay, let's go with the opposite uh, gender stereotype here, but where you know, an emotionally abusive or emotionally immature woman, the wife in the scenario is even saying to the kids, hey, don't tell your dad, don't tell your dad. The, but he hasn't really been showing up lately or he's been manipulating me and he's been uh, controlling the money where it's in, in essence, in, in reality, in this scenario, it was the wife that was being the one that was more emotionally abusive. But then she was triangulating by saying to the kids, Hey, you can't tell your dad this, but I'm telling you, cause I want you guys to be aware because I really, I can trust you guys. And so then dad's just going around just being and doing. And then the kids are kind of viewing him as, man, I can't believe what he's doing to mom. Even though in this scenario, it wasn't the thing that he was doing to mom, but it was mom's manipulation or triangulation of the kids. And this, they didn't, dad and the kids didn't work this out till later in life, which is just so unfortunate. So in these scenarios too, the abuser might monopolize the victim's time and ensure they have very little opportunity to socialize or maintain their relationships, kind of keeping them busy all the time. They could insist on accompanying the victim to social events, creating this sense of unease or inhibiting the victim's ability to communicate freely with others. You'll find that in these scenarios, a lot of times the uh, the abuser will just want to go and, no, if you're going out with your friends, then, then why can't I just come hang out? I want to meet your friends. I think that'd be fun. And or, no, you should invite them over here. And I promise I'll be out of the room. But then when the friends come over, then the abuser is sure to be there all the time. And this is where we go back to the person that is the IT manager or the technology abuser in a sense where, no, bring them home because then I can listen in with the, the devices that we have around the home. So, again, this objective is to isolate the victim and making sure that they have very little or limited access to external support. So by controlling the victim's social environment, the abuser then aims to reinforce their power, their control, making the victim increasingly dependent on them emotionally and psychologically. And then it's the similar vibe I think we've had with all the patterns of coercive control, but attempts by the victim to reestablish social connections are then met with, it could be punishment, further manipulation. The victim might be gaslit into believing that they are misremembering events or overreacting. And so then the abuser creates uh, this profound, they can create this profound sense of loneliness in the victim and desperation. And that just exacerbates this control over their life. Boy, it's, it's hard to go from, we went to, we started with jokes, haikus, and riddles. Then we went to a very heavy section of these different patterns of coercive control. But I just want to make you aware of those. And if those are happening in your relationship, first up, know that you're not alone. By far, you're not alone. The reason this episode exists is because of all of the examples that I've, I've been sent. And you are welcome to, to share your examples with me at contact at TonyOverbay.com or info at TonyOverbay.com. 
and and I will read them and I see you and I hear you and I know the struggles that you're going through and uh, just know that you are on this this road to self-discovery and you didn't know what you didn't know and now you know but you're not really sure what to do and that can be a really difficult place to be but eventually you're going to do more than you don't and finally you're going to become and if you are in a situation or a position where you still are wondering but is it me am I the problem most likely you're not because you are the one that is asking the questions and you're the one that's doing the work. And if you start asking your spouse, your partner to, you would love for them to, to take a look at some of this information that you're learning, then sometimes that will be the, the exact recipe to start having you both go down this path of things that you didn't know that you didn't know. There are other times where it might lead to more gaslighting, but just know that you are starting to now understand what's happening and you're starting to get more data. And that's a huge part of this awakening to the emotional immaturity in your relationship. And and quite frankly, it can be the emotional immaturity in your own self. And that's part of what we all go through just in the process of being human. And you don't, you don't know what you don't know. You don't go get the tools until you've been through some stuff in your life or in your relationship. And so if you are listening to this, you're definitely, especially if you're still listening to this episode, you're definitely on that path of, of discovery. Keep on discovering and you do deserve to be happy. And it's 100% absolutely unequivocally okay for you to have your own thoughts and opinions and emotions. And I would love it if you can get to the place sooner than later where you can spend more time just thinking and being and dreaming and doing and wondering and being curious than trying to manage your emotional response or the relationship to try to control someone else's emotions because that's not okay. All right, I welcome your questions, your feedback, and I will see you next time on Waking Up to Narcissism. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.